So born in the short-lived West African country of Biafra, Louis Chodosuki and his mom fled the country during the war that would take the life of his father, who was also a figure of great reverence and prominence in the country. And it would create a set of expectations about who Louis was and should be that would end up following him well into his adult life, landing first in Jamaica, where his mother was actually from, and then eventually making their way through D.C. to L.A. He spent his life, as the line from the Bowie song Space Oddity goes, floating in a most peculiar way. And that song, in fact, has been a bit of a lifelong obsession for Lewis, along with Bowie and his music. And in fact, it's the name of his really moving new memoir about this evolving exploration of everything from identity and race to science fiction and music. Lewis is now a professor of English at Boston University, where he directs the African-American Studies program. He's also the author of influential and award-winning scholarly work, and his writing appears in international and national venues. And he's the editor-in-chief of The Black Scholar, the premier journal of Black studies in America. So excited to dive deep into this conversation with him and share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you You'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. So you and I both share what sounds like a lifelong obsession with the same song. 
Which one? Bowie's Space Oddity. <laughs> I, I thought it was that, but I wanted to confirm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which clearly, you know, it, you, you've pulled a line from it to name the new book, which is fantastic. Um, and also, you know, we'll dive into uh, very descriptive in a lot of different ways. But I remember, you know, that song comes out, I believe it was 69. Yeah. I was four or five years old. So I probably didn't hear it for another couple of years. But even though I was only single digits in age, I can almost tell you where I was the first time I, I heard it. And that song has never let go of me, you know, now in my 50s. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> it's so funny because, you know, when you go through so many iterations of a book project, it becomes so many different things. But at the end, it turned out to be exactly what I set out to so many years ago, which is a book that tells the stories of my life through the lens of Bowie songs, um, or at least through the chapter headings of Bowie songs and my experience of Space Oddity from the, I won't say I can remember where I first heard it. I can remember being told where I first heard it, <laughs> which is exactly how this, the, the book begins. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is an interesting sort of like jumping off point. I know, you know, for, for you also, and I want to circle back to this later in the conversation, sound and music and technology is also a sort of like a big part of you and your exploration. The book jumps off and, and really, if we take a step back in time, your dad was uh, Biafran, uh, Igbo people, which I, I knew very little about. So I went back and actually did a little bit of discovery and um, my eyes were really open to um, so much of what had been going on. I guess Biafra was a, a country uh, that existed before Nigeria became independent in um, 60, but then sort of was subsumed and then redeclared its independence um, for three or four years uh, just as a state. But you know that ended in a uh, civil war. So you have this country, effectively, that only existed for a relatively short period of time as an actual independent entity. Yes. Yeah. The impact of Biafra, that almost country, or that brief country, continues. Um, I think it's much more definitive of contemporary Nigeria and contemporary Nigerians in the diaspora than most people acknowledge. In many ways, Biafra is the engine, the civil war and the almost genocide is the engine that drove so many Nigerians, particularly Igbos, internationally. They've always been traveling internationally, but Biafra was a really important uh, reason for exile and migration or escape. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I know th there was, you know, it sounds like the region was sort of uh, <laughs> divided in this almost north, south, east and west way. Nigeria, you mean? Yeah, Nigeria. Yeah, yeah. greater Nigeria. You had the Hassan Fulani up, up north and uh, Yoruba in the west, uh, Ibo in the east. And and over and almost 200 others. <laughs> other right, right. And, and those are all only the major, major and then all, all sorts of others. <laughs> And it sounds like there were really, even though I think a lot of people focus on sort of what happened in the 60s and 70s on, you know, it does sound like there is this decades long, if not longer, ethnic tension that leads to violence over and over and over in the region. Um, most recently with um, Boko Haram and other such, you know, eruptions, which continue. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of it tends to be the, at least the most deadly of the experiences of violence are the north-south tension, right? Particularly the extremely fundamentalist north and the arguably 
excessively cosmopolitan <laughs> east and west yeah your dad in uh in, in the conflict in, in probably not appropriate to call it conflict in the war <laughs> yes um was was a major figure and and i guess a major figure in the country in uh biafra and in the the Igbo community and I, I guess it was a, a a long time until you would know a lot of the story yeah but tell me a bit about who, who he actually was as i show in the book so much of who he was is wrapped up in myth and longing and you know nostalgia for what we could have been you know and what nigeria or what biafra was meant to be but was prevented from becoming but my father was one of those highly trained or highly capable young africans during colonization who were sent to prestigious military schools in Europe, um, Sandhurst in his case, or in the case of him and his cohort, where they were being trained to take over the reins of government um, when the British and the Europeans began to realize that uh, colonization was formally going to end. It was best to prepare a new generation to take over on behalf of the British or give them independence, but train them in England, <laughs> you know, to make it an easier transition for the British. In his own cultural context, he was a remarkable figure. He was an athlete. He was a military man. He was, you know, um, extremely popular. And he comes from a family that in Eastern Nigeria was a well-reputed family from, you know, before colonization. Um, so even though Igbos are famous for not having kings, Igbos have a history of really notable individuals who are treated as if they were, <laughs> my godfather being one. And in Eastern Nigeria, my father, certainly in Onisha and his village. But uh, he went to Sandhurst, uh, along with all of these uh, really capable and talented young Africans, um, young African men specifically. And uh, in Sandhurst, at Sandhurst in uh, England, is when he met my mother, who, on the other hand, <laughs> was of a generation of Caribbean highly capable young women sent to become nurses or to part, you know, help rebuilding the mother country after World War II. So you have two highly gendered cohorts interacting or intersecting with my mother and my father. Yeah. I, I was curious that your mom coming from Jamaica ended up in uh, the UK to study, I guess it was nursing. I, I was curious about the choice between whether it was more common at the time to go to the U.S. for education or to go to the U.K.? Because it seems like the U.K. was was sort of like the, the, the more dominant place where a lot of people went. Well, you know, waves of um, immigration have a lot to do with the whims and policies of the United States. During the early 20th century, Caribbean people came to the United States. <laughs> it was easier then. And then after the you know number of really restrictive immigration acts in the 20s, it's harder to come to the United States. But because Britain is the quote-unquote mother country, um, folks try to get into England, but after World War II, England actively reaches out to its colonies to help rebuild. And so South, South Asians, Caribbean people, and African people start being wooed by British companies and British industries, such as nursing for Caribbean women. And so when she goes to the UK, they go as British subjects. Hmm. Oh, interesting. They don't. They go. They have passports. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they go as British subjects, and they're going home. 
they're going to the seat of empire. We tend to forget that that generation saw their relationship to the British and to the colonizer in quite a different way than the, their children, who were more the anti-colonial, decolonial right. generation. That earlier generation, this was home, and we were going there to help rebuild the mother country. And so, of course, once they get there, they discover you know, many, many things that they did not imagine in terms of race and racism and et cetera. But West Indian nurses are a distinct thing in the UK. After 1965, an immigration changes a bit in the United States with a new, new set of acts meant to open up after those acts in the 1920s, those immigration acts, you start seeing folks come to the United States. Um, and that's my generation, start coming more to the United States. As I say, it's pointed out in the book, almost everybody, all the women in my family are nurses. And this is not a unique thing for West Indian people. That's so interesting. So did you ever talk to your mom about her intention had she not met your dad? Was her intention to stay there or to then just go there to, to train for education and then come back? It was to go train, of course, while training, make some money, send money back, you know, fairly typical. I don't know that she ever thought she would stay. There were many of her generation that just thought they were there for a while. They didn't really think they were going to stay for very long and go back at some point, especially since she had a mother and family back in Jamaica. So yeah, I don't think she ever intended to stay. In fact, all of our conversations and all of the things she wrote that I read, her notes and her letters and such, always suggested that this was just temporary, even if temporary meant 10 years, but it was still temporary. Yeah. So she she ends up there, um, does her training, uh, meets your dad, they fall in love, and then they end up both going back to Africa. Six weeks after they meet. <laughs> right. I, I mean, and I'm, I'm like reading that three, I'm like, wait, did I just read that right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Pretty incredible. And her family, it doesn't seem like was the happiest about that. <laughs> no, because again, generations, that generation was taught that Africa was shameful. Africans were ignorant and primitive and savages, and they weren't Christian and that sort of thing. And so, you know, there's a whole history of this in the Black diaspora, slaves being taught that they should be grateful that they were taken away from Africa. So her generation pretty much believed that. Um, especially her class. This is before reggae and Rastafarianism and Black Pride. You know, people have to remember this is before all that stuff. Once that stuff hits, we get the sensation, this sensation, this idea that um, it's always been that way. We were always proud to be Black. Well, no, people had to make us proud to be Black or teach us that this was a possibility. She learned once she met my dad, and he was not what she expected. But she also learned accidentally because West Indians and West Africans in general didn't spend a whole lot of time with each other because of that prejudice that I just mentioned. Um, the other side of that prejudice, of course, was from the Africans, for whom the West Indians, well, they had been slaves, <laughs> right? And slaves um, have a distinct kind of shamefulness, even though it was forced and by colonization and et cetera. So there was no reason for them to have anything to do with each other. So that's, that's the magic behind how they came together. Yeah. I mean, and when they landed in West Africa, you know, as you shared, your dad and his family were, you know, they were, were people of prominence. So it's kind of stunning how quickly it goes from sort of arriving in, in, in one domain and state. And then as 
tensions rise and, and war breaks out, you know, everything changes profoundly quickly. Your dad ends up passing at that time. And I guess tradition was that you would marry the if if there was a, a you know surviving brother, that would be, you know, just what you did. That was custom, which which is yes. I, I found interesting because I think that custom, I've heard that custom actually across a lot of different people and, and faith-based traditions also. It's an eminently practical one too. It's <laughs> <laughs> right, sort of like keep it all in the family. Like we all know each other and like, you know, that we're already family. And nobody may want to marry a widow. Right. And on the one hand, it's very practical. On the other hand, it's just really strange. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Especially to a Jamaican woman. <laughs> yeah. So I guess knowing that that was her, quote, fate, your mom chose something else. Yeah, she chose to, as the stories go, take me and run or flee or escape. I don't know how to actually structure it because it's not something she ever talked about. And so I had to piece it together talking to family members and, you know, and everyone, of course, has their own agendas and how they remember the story. But yes, she was supposed to um, marry my next uncle my father's next brother. And um, his resentment over my mother not marrying him and not giving him access to or fatherhood over the first son of the first son, which is what I was or am, lasted for, I it, it, it might continue now. <laughs> I mean, um, it's certainly present when I'm in you know, in the presence of this particular uncle, who I respect immensely, and I understand where he's coming from, but uh, the resentment of that lasted for decades, decades, the, the, the whole length of my life. But yeah, she left, and uh, with Ojukwu's help, Ojukwu, the head of state of Biafra, um, the king of all Igbos, as they called him before he died, um, helped my mother depart Biafra literally right before it collapsed and right before he escaped and went to the Ivory Coast, where he was in exile for some years. Yeah. Ajuko is um, your godfather also, right? Yes, my godfather. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's when you think about that, you use this, this phrase, the first son of the first son. Tell me more about what that really means. Well, if we were anthropologists, we would talk about the, the male primacy. <laughs> and if the first son is the head of the family and the head of the clan, well, then the first son of that first son is not only heir to the title and um, the position of authority, it has this also powerful significance that the first and the first and the first. I mean, I'm sure if I had a grandson and he'd be the first son of the first son of the first son, then, you know, God bless him. That would be so much invested in terms of expectations and power, right? But that phrase has been repeated throughout my life whenever I encounter people who are old enough to be a part of the story going back to the late 50s and the 60s. But it still means something amongst Igbo culture in eastern Nigeria and beyond. You're the, you're the head of the family, the titular head of the family, and there's a great deal of expectations placed on you. And uh, as you might know, one of the stories within the book is how to be invested with such significance and meaning when you are also growing up in the United States and in the Caribbean is to always know you are going to fail those expectations. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like especially um, that really started at, at a young age for you. You know, your mom, um, you, you and your mom end up in, in the Caribbean and over time people start to come 
and visit. And, you know, you're sort of like a young kid just trying to fit in, just trying to figure out where you belong. <laughs> like, like, and, and then, you know, former soldiers or people of prominence or people who knew the family would show up and treat you in this way and use this language that was, it sounds like you, know, you really struggled with. Well, yes. Um, not only because I'm a kid trying to fit in, in, in a country where being an African or being an outsider, right, is particularly charged with negative, you know, feelings and um, emotions. Uh, as I said, this is pre-Black Pride. Or, or when I go back to Jamaica, Black Pride is really just seeping into the mainstream, you know, <laughs> um, culture. But Yes, you're growing up trying to fit into a culture that doesn't know what to do with you. You're also in a family that you're not related by blood, right? That's important there. Um, you're African, but at the same time, occasional Nigerians are showing up saying, you are the first son of the first son. The war is not over, or we will win, or you will go back and do these things. And I'm too young to even know about Nigeria or that I'm from there. What I know is that I'm in this place that I need to fit in because if I don't fit in, it will be dangerous. And so on the one hand, I've got these men coming. But on the other hand, I have people around me, you know, dismissing me, mocking me and making fun of me because I'm African or not a member of the, you know, authentic culture that I'm in. So that's a strange back and forth. And for me, that's the beginning of my real consciousness of self. Mm, yeah takes it right back to that Bowie line, right? Floating in the most peculiar way. Floating in the most peculiar way. <laughs> it's sort of like there's like there, there's no tether, you know, there's there's no like really solid anchor. And the goal is to make it a beautiful feeling, but it takes a very long time for that. Right, to right. Um, you know, when all these people are showing up, your mom is there with you for a fairly short amount of time and then heads to the US, which I think was a fairly common yes. pattern to sort of like build a career. Um and also help send money back to support different people and, and participate in the family. For you, that that drops you sort of into this weird world of living with a lot of kids, uh, and, and auntie and uncle, which sounds like almost everybody, <laughs> you know, it is, it is in some form or shape an auntie and uncle. But this was exactly <laughs> this was also a fairly brutal experience for you. There was a line that jumped out that you wrote. You said being and and it there was a lot of violence, you know, like the, because corporal punishment and with or without any basis for it, you know, there was, there was yep. beating and you have this line where you, where you say being beaten was like being punished for my African past and for my American future. Tell me about this more. Um, on the one hand, you're an African. You are that you're from that place associated with guilt and shame and primitive and ignorant. And so things you say and do as a child, are going to be attributed to your African past. <laughs> Not because you're a dumb kid. <laughs> Other kids will do it and they'll be dumb kids. You do it while well, you're an African and that's how they are, right? But then on the other hand, my mother was in the United States. And in those days, having a parent in the United States or Canada or the UK meant that you would one day be going there. And so that is a kind of privilege Right. And so being beaten by either teachers or family members or other people, you always felt that it was for one or both of those reasons where you came from or where they assume you're going to go one day. And that's what I meant by that. And that's exactly how it felt. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like for you also, as as this is unfolding, 
there's also a sense of abandonment. You know, your your mom sort of left you. And I guess when you're young, you know, it's got to be pretty hard to understand, even though if the reason in her mind is, you know, I'm I'm sort of like, you know, like I'm I'm the scout who's going out to sort of like find the place to be and then actually start to, you know, like build some stability so that I can create a new place that will be better to bring my child to as a child. It just feels like you've been left behind. <laughs> One of the things I struggled with in the book is trying to convey a child's view versus a parent's yeah. view versus an adult's view looking back, now understanding immigration procedures and the practicalities of border crossing, that kind of thing. But as a child, it is brutal. It is brutal. And it takes me years to forgive my mother for that. Yeah. It sounds like part of your refuge was books to a certain extent also. You are sort of, which on the one hand is amazing to have that, but on the other hand also seems like it was yet another thing that made you a little bit weird or a little bit different than anybody else. (laughs) Boy, have you nailed it. Exactly. (laughs) You want to, you want to escape from being the oddball. And so you do things that make you more of an oddball. (laughs) Although in Jamaica, I want to say, One of the big differences I encountered was from Jamaica to growing up in the States, that in Jamaica, even though you were an oddball, people respected books a lot, right? So you are an oddball, but well, he's reading books. That's, (laughs) that at least is, uh, you know, something that we should respect, right? Yeah. And and for you, it sounds like a lot of those books were sci-fi, which, which to this day, I know is this, you know, like lifelong passion and, 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 and now scholarly fascination for you as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't remember, was it Robert Silverberg? Um, One of the great sci-fi writers talked about the magic age. And I can't remember the magic age. I think he said, if you haven't gotten really into sci-fi by the time you're 13 or 14, you'll never really get it. (laughs) And so this is happening for me before those ages, before I hit the limit of the the magic age. Yeah. Which is there's a, sort of like an interesting tie back also, right? Because you have this song space Oddity bouncing in your head for years before you actually even, even know. I'm trying who, to find it on the radio all the time. <laughs> right. Um, and that song from my understanding is also Bowie wrote that song after seeing Kubrick's, uh, I guess it was probably a 68 film, 2001, a space oddity. So the, the name of it was, is, was a riff on that, which was one of the most epic sort of sci-fi movies of oh. the late sixties. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. So a couple years go by, um, you're surviving as best as you can trying to figure out uh, which way is up. Your mom eventually brings you to the U.S. You get put on a plane. You meet her. The first stop is D.C., which it sounds like, you know, for you, on the one hand, you're dealing with so many things because you've now changed countries. Um, you've now again. right again. You're now trying to figure out, you know, who am I in this context? Who am I without any context? Now you're in the presence of a mom who you feel abandoned you for years. And in a city where you feel very strange and foreign and different. And also in, in a very, the ethos in the house is basically you can't leave. And it's also where I find Space Oddity and find out that, oh, there's this person named David Bowie who not only did that song, but a bunch of these other weird songs I heard on the radio every now and then and really loved, right? But yeah, DC is where we, where I arrive and can't leave the house for a while, certainly. But it's also where the the um, universe of aunties begins to grow even more. Aunties from all over the place, from the Caribbean and from Africa, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds like on the one hand, that universe is different and supportive. There's also, I mean, what's interesting is the way that you write about and the way you tell stories about aunties is um, portraying them as really strong, fierce women. And sometimes, you know, like gruff and direct, but underneath it, you still get the feeling that there is, you know, there's this fabric of love. 
even though it might not be shown in this really, it, you know, it's shown as strength and, you know, like we will give you the experience and the structure to try and make you the person we want you to be in the world. <laughs> yes. And we may not have time to hug you all the time about it, <laughs> but our vision of love is conveying this very harsh information and strategies for survival here. This also applies to the folks in Jamaica as well, although it might be a little bit tough. It, it was tougher and more brutal there, but there is and was love underneath it. Um, as I talk about in the book later on, when my mother and I debate my past, you know, she's reminding me they were good to you. And I'm like, well, I don't remember them being particularly good to me. But as I get older, I understand that the definition of good <laughs> changes from culture to culture in terms of child rearing, right? But the women in, the, in Washington, D.C. and throughout the United States there is a very powerful undercurrent of love, but these are also individuals who have had to overcome a lot, multiple countries, multiple traumas, starting over again and again, right? Race, racism, being women, patriarchy, all these things they have to deal with. And they did so without the luxury of public complaint, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's being surrounded by them, having them all invested in helping uh, to raise you into the person <laughs> they, they would love to see you become. You know, you're also grappling simultaneously with the fact that like, okay, so here's, but here's this one woman, you know, like who is my mom, who I still feel not really estranged from in a lot of different ways and, and angry at. And yet, um, you know, like she is your only living parent. You know, you have a lot of aunties around. Um, so there's this perpetual tension. It's, you know, fairly, fairly soon after that, you end up moving uh, from DC to LA. Yes. At a time. To yet another country. <laughs> right. W which is, I mean, at LA at the time that you move there is, you know, an entirely different experience for you. I mean, when you drop into uh, that community, tell me what it was like for you to sort of go, and, and you're sort of perpetually bouncing from here and trying to figure out how do I first survive and then thrive and then the next place and next place and next place. When you drop into LA, what's that early experience like for you? So I'm bouncing around, and I suppose by this time in my development, uh, my primary mode of being is what do I need to be to work and function in this place? <laughs> right? How do I assimilate? Um, of course, that's not a word I knew, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. How do I assimilate? Uh, arriving in Los Angeles, what's crucial was, as I mentioned in the book, I was happy to get there because there was an uncle. After aunties and aunties and aunties, like, yes, an uncle, <laughs> right? And perhaps this uncle will teach me all the tough guy stuff that, uh, um, as a young boy, you think you need to know, right? But my strongest and earliest memories of L.A. was basically landing in gang territory. You know, yes, there are other memories of those early days. They were lovely and wonderful. And even the awareness of gang territory was lovely and wonderful because it was a bit of an adventure, right? And I was safe from it. I was protected. I was too young to be out on the streets on my own by that time, right? But um, my strongest memories of arriving in LA is arriving in a place where the awareness of street violence and gang culture is everywhere. Maybe it was slightly exaggerated because we were immigrants, Black immigrants in an African-American working class community, right, which I talk about later on. But that was one thing that was impressed upon me. Don't go out because of this, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess what what I'm curious about is is what that's like for you. Like, what? How does it? In terms of you trying to figure out which way is up, who you are, where do you belong? Because now it's not just, you know, you've been traveling this journey where you know that you have the West African side, you know that you have the Caribbean side. You're now in the United States, and people perceive you a certain way or or don't. And now you're trying to find belonging within those communities and also within family. And now you're dropped into this place where, for a lot of people, the gang is the family. The, the dominant gang in my neighborhood when I was growing up was the Inglewood family. That's they were called the Inglewood family, <laughs> right? So yeah, that makes perfect, perfect sense. But I also want to emphasize that a lot of these family members, in their mind, is Biafra. We're in LA now. We were in DC. We were in Jamaica. But for my mother and a lot of my aunties, especially since we reunited with many aunties that my mother met as a nurse when she was in nursing school in England, a lot of them are working in LA now. Um, and so we arrived there. And so the community of aunties are Nigerian and Jamaican, largely nurses. And all of them are thinking about, oh, wow, you guys, when you went to the refugee camps in Gabon before we left West Africa, we thought you were dead. We thought you were lost. And so the Biafra thing is very much what keeps my aunts psychically together, at least the West African aunts. So that's happening. And around me is the gang culture. And also around me is the larger narrative that's now clear that African-American identity and culture is Black identity and culture where you are now. In D.C., because I was sort of secluded much from it, it begins to encroach upon my consciousness in D.C. as I write about, you know, certainly in school, when I first hear the N-word and things like that. But when you're in L.A., South L.A., you know, at least in D.C., we were in an area now looking back on it where there were a number of white people and, you know, people from all over the world. But in L.A., it's just black folk. <laughs> and so the pressure of that particular identity, the dominance of that particular identity is really strong. Yeah. Right? And also something that the family has to push against. Right. I mean, you, you write um, of, of that time, anything that was alien to my friends and neighbors was branded white, even if it came from Jamaica or Nigeria. Yeah. That's something that really confused me when I was growing up. Like we listened to reggae. Oh, that's, you listen to that white people stuff. We listen to Juju or high life music. Oh, that's that white people stuff. Now, looking back on it, I could say, okay, maybe there were some African-American folks who knew that white people had a greater fondness for Caribbean and African world music at the time, but not these kids. These kids are from my neighborhood. For them, anything that wasn't what they knew was branded as white, which is what introduces me to the idea that blackness and whiteness in many cases have nothing to do with skin. I mean, talk, talk to me more about that because I, I, I think that's a really interesting context. Yeah. Um, when they were talking about black and white, and this is me, the kid trying to figure it out, I initially thought, okay, it's something that's about our skin color. But clearly it wasn't because when they say, okay, reading books is acting white, you know, that old cliche. It may be, may be a cliche, and it may be dismissed and argued about, but it actually is, was a thing that one encountered. But for me, it wasn't that they were saying white people were smarter, because I didn't see any white people reading books either, <laughs> certainly not on television. I'm like, well, no. So what does whiteness mean, or what does blackness mean? If they're saying that things that are Nigerian or Jamaican or Caribbean are white things, 
clearly they have a concept of whiteness and blackness that is independent of skin color. At least that's how it seems to me as a child. Yeah. So was your was your your experience as, as at that age then that blackness in the area that you were was about African American culture or American black culture, which you were in some way um, not a part of. Exactly. That was the conclusion, you know, when you're nine years old or so or 10, that, okay, what, as a person trying to assimilate into whatever I must assimilate to, to stay safe and to profit and, and, do, and do well, um, in this context, blackness is that which I am not. <laughs> and now that I know that it has nothing to do with my skin color, well, I not to, I need to figure out what this other thing is, right? But it's clearly not what I am. And for me, it reminds me, of course, of being in Jamaica, where being African, when the Rastas and all of the Black Pride people are talking about being Black and proud and there's African images and everyone's playing the drums, but they don't like Africans. <laughs> At least that's the experience we had, right? So the Africa they're talking about is something different from where we came from. The Africa they're talking about is not a place that has genocide and civil war. It's a, it's a place that has something to do with colonialism and racism, but not explicitly our experience of genocide, where my mother kept stressing, where one group of Black people are trying to kill another group of Black people, right? Certainly on the behest of larger colonial systems of power, but, you know, you're, you're a kid, <laughs> right? And even my parents, and my, my mother, that is, and my aunts, they don't, they weren't thinking in those abstract terms about global colonialism. So then you come to the United States and, okay, blackness is that which you are not. And growing up as a black immigrant in these communities, it's very common to be told you're not black enough. Your mood, your attitude, your take, your interpretation, it's not black enough. And that only emphasizes this idea that, okay, blackness is not your skin color. There is something else you are lacking. Yeah. And it sounds like, you, you know, a lot of the way that you responded to that was because you're already, you're at an age where no matter what, we just, we just want to feel okay. We want to know that, you know. And in LA, you don't want to get beat up. Right. You know, and there's a safety <laughs> element to it, you know, because there was, you know, when you're walking around at any given time, if you are alone, especially when you start to get a little bit older, you know, in an area where there's a lot of violence and based on affiliation or non-affiliation, yeah, I mean, safety is a is a huge part of that, you know. And it sounds like for you, you make some choices, you know, like this is really the way I'm going to be, so that I, I can feel accepted and can walk safely, you know, like through different places, including my life. Absolutely, different kinds of performance, <laughs> right? Okay, I will perform this kind of blackness, or I will perform this kind of blackness, or this kind of black maleness requires that I play football and play sports, or this kind of black maleness means that I you know, do the tough guy thing, right? This kind of blackness means that, okay, I shouldn't walk around with my science fiction novels and try to share my obsession with the Diamond Dogs album with a lot of my peers, right? It would lead to even further expulsion from this emergent community called black. Yeah. I mean, at that age, are you, is any of this a conscious process for you? You know, or, or are you literally just opening your eyes every morning and trying to figure out, like, what do I need to be okay? You know, there is certainly an amount of uh, instinct here and self-preservation. But 
I, I remember thinking about these things and deliberating, right? I mean, when I started getting more involved in football and athletics and lifting weights and all of that, that was a choice. It was practical. I'm like, okay, I don't actually like football. You know, when I came to the United States, the only sport that I was aware of was cricket and soccer. That just didn't go over well. <laughs> so I said, okay, football, basketball. I don't actually like these sports. However, they are crucial to this thing called black manhood, at least when I was growing up. And so I mastered them, right? Okay, these kinds of books or these kinds of ideas are not really celebrated publicly. So I continued to master them, but kept it private. So there were a lot of choices being made. And I don't think I'm unique in that way. I think a lot of us <laughs> were much more thoughtful about those kinds of decisions, especially when you're entering your teenage years and there's pressure to conform as well as genuine fears of safety. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, and, and for you, being a part of a team gives you that affiliation with a group, yes. which also gives you a sense of belonging and a sense of safety without feeling like you have to participate in one of the gang activities or you know, like be, belong in that way. Exactly. And I think a lot of people make that deliberate choice. Yeah. And don't forget, being a member of a team increases the possibility of sex. <laughs> well, I mean, come on, we're 15, we're 14 right. year old. <laughs> for, for any teenage boy, it's like... <laughs> 99% of your waking thoughts. Um, exactly. That's what I mean. We are thinking about this stuff. Right, this right, right. Um, you're going along with that also, sort of like stepping into a certain image. And and it sounds like you're almost kind of li living a double life as you know, playing this one role on the outside. But you still got a passion for books and for reading and for sci-fi and for music on the inside, and you're not sharing it. And that reflects negatively in how you're doing in school. But then there are a couple of these sort of like moments where people in school realize, oh, there's something else going on here. You know, there's a there's a moment where you randomly you take a reading comp test, you know, and then the teacher literally calls you a cheater because she can't believe the score that you got. And what's interesting is, you know, that could have gone one, you know, in, in any number of different ways, including getting you expelled from school. But the teacher, I guess, there were in sense that there was something else happening here and and actually calls your mom into school for you know like what you think is going to be this terrible meeting and really to sort of like let her know there's something extraordinary um happening here and then a coach who i guess sees a manuscript that you had turned into or can't believe that you wrote it and then has the sort of prescience to understand how to treat you one way privately while still quote honoring you know, the sort of the, the reputation the that you had been building, right? Yes. Um, as I talk about in the book, there are a number of moments, including bad ones. You know, there are a couple of um, bad moments with teachers um, that I mentioned, but those are also formative. But the one you're referring to, yeah, the, the, the teacher discovering that um, this kid who is always in trouble, always getting into fights, because he's assimilating and he's discovered or he thinks he's discovered the key to black manhood and who's avoiding, you know, education and evading whatever talents he might have in that direction. Right. And loving being in the back of the class and all of that and loving scaring people because I'm lifting weights and I'm big now. This teacher discovers that my reading comprehension skills are beyond anything that she had ever seen. 
And you're right, it could have gone a different way. I also talk about how I didn't tell my mother <laughs> because I didn't know what to make of it. But then I also have a coach who accidentally discovers that I'm writing a novel, and this is sixth, seventh grade. And I expect that the coach is going to either laugh at me or out me <laughs> as a guy who's not only writing novels. You know, it's so funny. Just the other day, I actually found that manuscript. Oh, no kidding. Oh, yeah. It's in the, my mother's files. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm thinking it would be so terrifying for the kids I grew up with to not only know that I tried to write a novel, but the novel is about swords and dragons and demons <laughs> and spaceships and, right? <laughs> right. That, that would have been like the final straw, just like that the ultimate, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Anyway, the coach discovers that I did do that. And I guess the coach turns out to also have been a hardcore fan of science fiction and surprising surprises me by one day giving me a box of books that, you know, we couldn't really afford that many. My mother would get them every now and then, but this was a whole box of really great, well-known classic. Now that I look back on it, science fiction, but what's crucial about it is that the coach realized that, okay, I must not publicly treat him like someone who loves these books and is aspiring to write them because I understand it's a white coach. I understand the community that I'm in. He is a young black man and he is respected on the field of sport, but also just broadly. He's a tough guy or he's get, he gets involved in these scrapes. Right. And so the coach, and I think I wrote, I forgot the actual sentence that uh, the fact that she continued to treat me like a thug in public was surprisingly generous. And it was. She understood. Yeah, she she let you keep that sort of like the reputation that allowed you to feel a sense of belonging and safety around you while still honoring that side that was deeper down. That was the, it sounds like really, you know, like it's such an essential part of, of who, who you were then and who you would continue to uh, become. And she gave me books, a yeah. bunch of great books. <laughs> books, some of which, you know, have really informed, you know, who I am and what I do. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You also wrote of that time. Um, my body was becoming less and less my own property and more the product of everyone's assumptions. Yes. This is the period of growing puberty, young black man. We're talking the 1970s in LA, South LA, and I'm working out. You know, I'm working out because you want to look capable of the kind of violence you may not be willing to do. You, you want to look, you know, peace through strength, as it were. <laughs> look like you could do violence, but uh, you, don't, that you don't actually have to do anything. And so that, of course, feeds into, okay, you're this big black guy, right? And so for people to then assume positive things of you, even black people, it becomes uh, less and less the case. Yeah, I mean, at, for you, are you aware of that perception also? And and simultaneously, the fact that you're doing these things to appear a certain way, but underneath it, if called to act in the way that that you know was may have been expected, it wasn't in you. Well, it was in me for a time. Okay, uh, there was a time when it was in me. Um, I think I frame it in the context of having gone back to Jamaica after I was right. attacked. I mean, where where I was attacked, but. Having gone back to Jamaica because I'd, I'd been getting into fights, right? Getting into fights. Um, one thing I didn't talk about in detail, though, in the book, but had, that had something to do with it, was uh, I got beat up a lot. <laughs> it's one thing to talk about fights and then people assume that, oh, that means you did well. No, no, I got beat up a lot, right? <laughs> Quite a few scars, even before I, went, I was sent back to Jamaica as punishment, right? But then on top of that, as I do mention in the book, Guns started to appear. Uh, you know, the, in terms of generational shifts, I was at that period of time when getting beat up was okay, but then suddenly people started dying. And that had a lot to do with me backing off from actual, actual, you know, violence. Yeah. And my cousin went to jail, you right. know, and, I, and a couple of my friends got killed. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like for you also, um, this repeated refuge in uh, books, it just keeps coming back and keep coming back, keep coming back. Not just sci-fi, but also time in the library. Books didn't fail. Yeah. And it, for you, I mean, it sounds like also high school was probably the time where, you know, the family used to regularly gather after church and not just the immediate family, but friends from all different yes. places and all different backgrounds. And you're really exposed in a, in a in a, a regular way to all of these rich conversations and stories about where people came from, and also debating, you know, mm. like 
all these different things and the, the way that people behave, the way people perceive the identities that they step into or, or they should or shouldn't be certain ways. It sounds like th that was an experience for you, sort of like this season that really piqued curiosity in the notion of diaspora. Yeah. And as I said, I discovered that word around the dining table with family or my mother. These are terms that they used, right? Those after church meetings, um, dinners, or events, because it could have been, you know, Boxing Day or Crop Over or Independence, Nigerian Independence or whatever, right? They also served a policing function. It was the elders trying to make sure we young people yeah. realized that we were not like these people around us. We were different. You may be Trinidadian, you may be Jamaican, you may be Igbo, you may be Yoruba, but we are a new identity, which is Black immigrant. We are not like the other folks around us, right? Those forms of Blackness and whiteness are not for us, right? It may or may not have worked, but it certainly was the intent of uh, these dinners. But this is also when I start discovering that there's a prejudice against science fiction in the intellectual world. I begin to realize, oh, it's not seen as serious books. They're not seen as serious books. It's not serious literature. And so I'm thinking, well, what is serious literature? <laughs> and then I start reading up on some of the things that I hear people talking around at the, the dining table, you know, diaspora, or they're talking about flight lieutenant Jerry Rawlings in Ghana, and they're talking about Namdi Azikiwe and all of these important figures. And my uncles, some of them, and aunties, my mom included, had some of these books on the, on the shelves. My mom had copies of my godfather's memoirs, which I'd never paid any attention to. And so I start reading that stuff, right? And as I get closer and closer to the end of high school, I mean, I've never heard of anything called African-American literature or African literature or whatever, but I start paying more attention to books about Black people from different parts of the world and in the United States. And so that really prepares me for college, even though I didn't know it. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like it lights a flame that um, it's interesting from the outside looking in. I'm curious whether this is how you perceived it. You know, you've got this deep impulse for learning you know, for reading and for learning and for discovery. And this is sort of like a way where the impulse to read, the impulse to learn and discover and to uncover, the impulse to try and figure out a sense of identity and belonging, it all comes together for you. And then you have the ability to then say like, well, well academically, you know, here's this invitation for me to actually just pour myself into this. And to give shape to all of these impulses and sufferings and alienations yeah. and border crossing confusions that I've seen in my past or I've experienced in my past. Um, researching that as in fact, the emotional core of this thing called diaspora, things start to make sense. Things don't get easier. They just start making sense. <laughs> yeah. It occurs to me, we haven't actually sort of... Um described what when we're talking about diaspora what are we actually talking about it what is the sort of the general understanding of what we're talking about um basically the scattering of seeds <laughs> right it comes from that etymological origin but it's the scattering or spreading of a particular group of people across a global landscape internationally you know the jewish diaspora the armenian diaspora etc of course now the term now means 
people use it to mean everything, you know, anything spread out, <laughs> there's a diaspora to it. But um, in my case, it certainly is about the African diaspora, but understood in a way that I think most of my colleagues and scholars do not understand it. In America, the dominant understanding of diaspora is through the slave trade. That's a part of my legacy too, certainly on my mother's side. But it's also true that the diaspora includes voluntary migration. It also includes labor migration. It also includes back and forth motions and movements. So the spread is much more convoluted than the one that I started to discover as a scholar, which is really Africa, the Middle Passage, and then the, the so-called New World. But for me, it's like, well, you know, frequent flyer miles, people are going back and forth, and people, are, it's, you know, the modern and contemporary diaspora is a lot more complicated. And the old diaspora model assumes a kind of congruence or continuity of um, solidarities and connections, right? The diaspora, as I encounter it, includes a lot of hostility and misapprehension and confusion and distortion and static, right? It's not the smooth movement of one group of people. For me, as you move from place to place, not only do you change, who your people are changes, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, interestingly, it sounds like that perspective also leads to some tension when you're in grad school. You know, you end up doing a dissertation, which effectively is contrasting Black immigrants with the experience of African Americans, like Black immigrants more broadly with what you just described. So that lens, though, when you're trying to find an advisor to sponsor your dissertation, it sounds like nobody wants to get on board with that exploration. And it remains thus. <laughs> there is a deep anxiety and discomfort dealing with the tensions and differences within the Black world in America. Outside of America, folks are much more comfortable dealing with it, right? Trinidadians will go on and on and on about those damn Jamaicans, right? And Jamaicans, in the, I mean, this is comfortable for Black folk outside of the United States, but within the context of white supremacy, I mean, white supremacy is a global phenomenon, clearly, but within the context of being a, a, a marginalized minority within the United States, there is the expectation or the hope that solidarity or unity is central to how you describe the experiences of Black people in the States. And so work that wants to threaten it or question it or problematize it, or that is comfortable arguing against it, right, tends to be less um, celebrated. And it tends to create a lot of hostility, you know, and, and resentment. There's times when, like at the dining table, when we would get together, and it seemed that we're meant to say that the great tension is Black and white. But from the Black immigrants' perspective, the greater tension is Black and Black. Mm. It is interesting, you know? Everybody's got a different context. Everybody's got a different lens and different experience. Um, and we also want to hold on to certain things and let go of certain things. And um, you know what I find kind of fascinating is that I feel like we're sort of like in this moment in time now, and maybe it's not a, a, a current, ten, you know, present tense phenomenon, where um, we just want to make everything binary. <laughs> That's exactly so. You know, we just, because it's easier for us to understand who we are, what to get behind, what to believe, what not to believe, and what to say yes and no to, and how to live our lives. But yet it's not reality. Yes, it's not reality. And, but it becomes our social and political realities, especially in as divisive a moment as we're in now, right? But 
the complexity and the contradictions and the sweet daily hypocrisies, <laughs> right? That's reality, right? That's reality. And so the dissertation proposal or the, the dissertation for me was my first official salvo in an attempt to expand these conversations about blackness and race beyond the binary. It hasn't always gone well, but one of the reasons this book I felt was, if not timely, but whatever, this is where I'm at, <laughs> it's to open that conversation outside of an academic world that is often hostile to having it. But it's clear to me that the broader community of readers is eager to have this conversation. I believe that politically and socially, we might be sort of trapped in these binary identities and might act that way. But whenever we're trapped into something, we're always looking for a way out. Or we're always looking for something that allows us to escape those binaries in the right way. Yeah, I, I, I so agree with that. And, and I feel like a lot of times we default to the binary because we think it makes the day-to-day -day existence easier. And yet it also locks in a certain amount of baseline and persistent suffering. Exactly. Exactly. And it also locks us into old methods that have not borne fruit, but they're comfortable. Yeah. Rather than having the more complicated, nuanced conversation that says, can we sort of have a conversation where we can get as close to objective reality, granted, I don't know if there is anyone, and then work with that? You see, that's why I think immigrants matter so much, mm. not just in terms of labor, not just in terms of religion and family structure and all of these things that used to be considered American verities, right? But immigrants... Their perspective on race, identity, culture, and politics as outsiders is so valuable. However, I think that as immigrants, we get, we get seen as, well, you're not really a part of this conversation. You don't quite understand what's going on here in the United States. As you know from my personal story and my scholarship, that's always been where I'm at. I'm the person who, okay, you don't quite understand. Okay, your interpretation of race and racism is quite different, and it's cute and nice, but it's not what we're doing here. My argument is that we need those other perspectives right now more than ever, just to free us from our binaries. Mm, yeah, right. We're and coming full circle, you know, back to that that line that started our conversation. It's the title of your book, floating in the most peculiar way. And what you offered was that well, it, maybe it's not actually about finding the tether, but actually finding comfort in the fact that um, there is this floating sensation that there is a a groundlessness, um, you know, like a constant moving around. It, there, it, there's a dynamic state that is not lockdownable nor necessarily desirable to lock down. And rather than doing everything we can to lock it down and to make it certain, maybe the answer is let's acknowledge the reality and see if we can get comfortable there. You too can be an immigrant. <laughs> 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 I'm thinking of some of my um, intellectual heroes, Caribbean writers like George Lamming and C.L.R. James. They would always argue back in the 50s when they arrived in England around the same time as my mom. They thought of Caribbean immigrants and African immigrants to the UK as not Jamaican or Trinidadian or even British. They saw these immigrants as a new type of creature never created before in modern times. <laughs> and the sensibility that these creatures had should not be marginalized and seen as strange, but they should be seen as prophetic versions of what we all should become. 
right? And that's something I still very much hold to, certainly in my writing. Mm, yeah. You, um, over the years, have uh, built a career as a scholar, uh, an academic professor, um, right now director of uh, BU African American Studies program um, at Black Scholar Journal. I'm actually curious. So the name of the program is uh, African American Studies. For now, right? How, I was, that was my like. How are you with that? As like that that because it feels like that's almost you know that has been your tension for this whole time. Well, another conversation would be about the ironies of me becoming a the director of an African American studies program and the editor in chief of a Black studies journal that's primarily connected to African American political history. Without getting into that conversation, just know that there is much laughter and and bemusement. <laughs> around those facts. But um, I took over a program in African-American studies, but that was actually always transnational, international, and Mm. diasporic in its focus, right? For a lot of my peers, at least the people before me, that term African-American was seen as capacious enough. I don't think so. And so as we expand from a minor to a major and from a program to hopefully a department, the name is going to be changed within the next year or so to African American and Black Diaspora Studies. Yes. Uh, interesting. Um, there's one other thing I want to sneak in before we sort of bring it home, which is you've also developed an interest in a, a scholarly allocation of energy to sort of like the exploration of Black people, music, and technology. Yes. Talk to me about this. I think it's fascinating. Um, well, Science fiction certainly has a lot to do with my interest in technology. And before the birth of this thing that's called Afrofuturism now, you know, I've always been reading science fiction as about minorities and marginalized people and immigrants and aliens, right? And machines. And that history of science fiction led me to research the history of science fiction only to discover that the first articulations of artificial intelligence as a very notion was, you know, in the, in the uh, mid-19th century, these speculative books about machines evolving according to Darwinian evolution, consciousness and identities. But they're, of course, they're called slaves, and they rise up against their masters in what's called a civil war. And I started to read more and more, and I discovered that some of these early writers of what would then become science fiction years later were obsessed with slavery and industrialization and colonialism. And so, so much of the genre actually emerges, like H.G. Wells and people like that, as they imagine, what if we got colonized just as we colonized other people? Right? Or what if we discover these other races that have different technologies and different powers? And so in discovering how deep race has been you know, embedded into the history of science fiction, it led me to look at how race is deeply embedded in the history of technology. And I found it there in some powerful, powerful ways. The music aspect was, as the book tells you, I've been obsessed with not just Bowie, but music my whole life and sound. And it became clear to me as someone who also played music and became obsessed with the knobs and the buttons (laughs) more so than the melodies and the performances that there's this whole culture of black people in the in Jamaica, in West Africa and in black America who are obsessed with knobs and buttons. 
right? Producers and DJs and sound engineers. And so I decided to tell the story of Black music, not as music, but as a way of interacting with accessible domestic technologies. And then that exploded in terms of my research. What if we read Black people as always having been involved in technology? And so I provide in my work a history going all the way back to the 19th century. So those are the intellectual um, frameworks for how that all comes together. Mm, so interesting. Um, and it's all sci-fi. Thank you, science fiction. <laughs> I know. It, it all comes back to that, you know, like, sort of like early seed for which, um, you know, to which you were drawn at the youngest of ages and for which you always felt a sense of othering to a certain extent, in addition to whatever other sources you may, you may have felt of that. And yet it is this, this thing that keeps weaving its way into nearly every part of your personal life, your, your professional life, your academic life. It is you know, like the, the red thread to a certain extent. <sighs> which has made more and more sense to me after writing the memoir, you know, because it is a thread, you pursue it, or, or a scene that you mine. And then at a moment when you can stop and look back, you will see that something has been charted out that can be represented in a story, which is, you know, I think of the memoir as, for those interested in the fairly unusual scholarly work that I've done, the book will tell the story of the kind of mind that arrived at those kinds of academic, you know, explorations. Mm. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So sitting here in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To live in such a way as to be able to tell a story of that life that is of use to yourself and those around you. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. Type.com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.